South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And it would be a very good time to dial because we still have a couple of open lines. We're going to start out talking to Margaret, but you know how busy it tends to get a little later on Sunday morning, getting those busy signals and sometimes a bit of a lengthy wait. So if you've got a question, a comment, something you'd like to discuss about plants or nature and <laughs> pick up the phone and just give me a dial a call you know the number 210-599-5555 it is a chilly morning out there 24 degrees at my house in bernie this morning here in san antonio hovering right around that freezing mark but uh every day that goes by we're a little bit closer to that warmer weather and i know <laughs> I know we're all very, very much ready for that. I've had enough winter for a while, and I know we don't have anything near what people up north have, but, uh, you know, we don't we don't live down here because we have frigid winters. We really live down here because we have warm winters, and uh, I, for one, am certainly ready to get back to that. I hate to keep people waiting, and since Mar- Margaret called in a little early, we'll just uh, go straight to those phone lines. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. I have two questions, uh, both about house plants or potted plants. Okay. I've got this ficus. It's the the fig one. The fiddly uh, fig. Or yeah, the rubber yeah. plant. Okay, fiddly fig. Uh, All right. The fiddly fig. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It looks good and it's growing well, I think, but it's dropping these. It's dropping the leaves. They're turning yellow and dropping. Is it supposed to do that? I would like them to stay on, but maybe it and. Am I nope. not watering it correctly, or do they just turn yellow and drop off? <laughs> well, it, occasionally you should have one turn yellow and drop off, but I would expect the tree to put on at least three new leaves for every one that it drops. If you're having more than that drop, it's simply a sign that it's gotten too dry at some point. I tell people the two secrets to growing ficus, whether it's fiddle leaf, whether it's rubber plant, whether it's ficus benjamina, but the two things that they really need are very bright light and do not ever let them get bone dry. Uh, If they dry out totally, they will drop yellow leaves for six weeks afterwards. So it's one plant where if you're going to make a mistake, it's better to err on the side of a little too much water than a little too not enough. Um, And it's the other thing that's really important is ficus are big plants. They make a lot of roots and most of those roots grow in the very bottom of the pot. So when you water, you can't water just a little bit. Uh, You've got to water enough to thoroughly soak that pot and it can be a little confusing because sometimes if that root ball does dry out it kind of shrinks and then you water the water runs to the edge of the pot goes down and comes out in the saucer and you think oh there's water coming out in the saucer so it's thoroughly watered Uh, that's not always the case and so if you ever feel like it's gotten too dry what I recommend is that on your next watering, water it with ice instead of liquid water because the ice melts slowly enough that it will really saturate that root ball. You can water that way every time if you want to. But uh, those yellow leaves are simply a sign that at some point it got too dry. That could be even be, you know, if you haven't had it for very long, it could have happened before you even got the plant. But the good news is it will recover completely. Uh, wouldn't hurt to give it a little Super Thrive, a little Garrett juice, but uh, that yellow leaf dropping like I said it should be just an occasional leaf and you should get oh two or three new ones for every old one that drops off uh, beyond that it's just a sign that it got a little too dry at some point and it will get over it 
Well, no, it dropped five of them in, within about four or five days. So. Yeah, it, it got too dry at some point. Okay, yeah, I'm pretty sure it did. I'm pretty bad about watering. Uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, just the thing that I always tell people is there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. When you water it, you really want to water it very, very thoroughly. And then when it's dry on the surface, it's time to water again. Uh, remember that simple rule, and you'll be beyond the day of yellow leaves on ficus trees. Okay. Uh, my other question is, uh, I got a, a 10 to 15 gallon uh, really beautiful pot, and it's going to be on the east-facing porch. Okay. And I'm trying to think what I could plant in there other than a fern, and I was wondering if you can think of some other options. Oh, there'd be lots of options that you can plant. Uh, the, the prettiest, the showiest, the most colorful things are always annuals. And it's a little early, as evidenced by the heavy frost this morning, it's a little early for spring things like begonias and impatiens and caladiums. All of those things would be absolutely gorgeous. I know that about annuals. Okay. Well, the, your most color is always going to be from annuals. But if you want something perennial, um, not going to be a lot in flowers. It's going to bloom over a long period of time. But as far as beautiful green things, a pot that big, I probably would put a plant in the middle that's going to get a little taller. Uh, my choice would probably be giant liriope or perhaps aspidistra, the so-called cast iron plant. And then around the outer edge, you can plant, if you want something really colorful, you could plant something like potato vine, which comes in three different colors and about five different leaf shapes. Uh, you could plant a, uh, a hardy fern like the asparagus springeri that will go down in the 20s without damage. And it will just cascade and be a mass of beautiful green foliage. Those are a couple of the things. There are other things like Lysimachia and uh, even English ivies. Uh, and there are you know, 50 different varieties of English ivy available, some like 450 total. But um, those would be some of the prettiest things you could plant that would only have to be protected in the very, very coldest weather. But they're not going to give you a lot of flowers. Potato vine will give you absolutely gorgeous foliage, but uh, there's not much flowering that's going to bloom for any length of time uh, and and the perennials that would flower many of those are going to freeze back and so you haven't really gained a whole lot over annuals so if you just wanted something um i hate to use the word monotonous but that's kind of what it would be to me you can fill that pot with shrimp plants that's going to bloom eight or ten months out of the year and uh and, and the hummingbirds will like it and everything but it's not real showy bright flowers or anything like that and, and, and unless you want to go to annuals uh your choices are going to be things like giant liriope aspidistra potato vine and some of oh. the other vining plants and, and they would be perfect about eating. aspidistra yes i have never seen a pretty aspidistra Never. <laughs> okay. Well, the ones that you are probably seeing are the old-fashioned, what they call cast iron plant. And people need to go through every two or three years and just cut all the leaves off and let it, you know, put on new foliage. And it will be somewhat attractive. There is a new variety of Aspidistra out there that only grows about 12, 14 inches tall. The variety is called Tiny Tank. T-A-N-K. Uh, it is much lower growing. It is much fuller. Uh, the leaves are much less prone to the things that make brown edges and brown tips. And uh, look for tiny tank aspidistra sometime, and you'll actually see a pretty aspidistra plant. 
I'll have to do that. <laughs> Yeah. And they can be they can plant be planted in the yard as well as in pots, but uh, they are by far the best aspidistra we've ever had when it comes to a possibility for pot culture. Okay, all right. Thank you very much. You are certainly welcome, and keep me posted on how that uh, how that uh, fiddle leaf does. When when did the yellow leaf dropping start? When when did you? I guess she must have hung up there. All right. Okay. Um, well, anyway, if you're still listening, what I was going to tell you is uh, if this started about two or three weeks ago, you probably have another two weeks of having some leaves yellow. If this started about a month ago, then uh, you should have very few additional leaves drop once you once you start watering properly, and especially if you put a little Super Thrive uh, in the water as you water. Anyway, I hope that gets your questions answered. Todd and Jan are my next two callers, and Todd is up first. Good morning, Todd. Hey Bob, good morning. How are good you today? morning, sir. Hey, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for. I used, I picked up several of the freeze misers, yeah, uh, and they worked wonders this year. I've I've been repairing pipes on exposed PVC <laughs> with <some> various sinks. <laughs> you and me year. both. Yep, yep. They. they I, I will tell job. you the. The one precaution with them that a good friend of mine who is in the rainwater catchment business pointed out is that they do use some water. And if you have a limited water supply, if you're using something like rainwater catchment, you need to think about which hydrants really need to be protected. But if you, uh, you know, if you have pretty much unlimited water and it's not going to hurt if over a week's time you run out a thousand gallons of water, those freeze misers are the most remarkable things. And uh, uh, this friend that was telling me about it said, uh, you know, a, a lady friend of his had used up a lot of rainwater. And he said, but she's not complaining too much because last uh, year she paid several thousand dollars in plumbing bills <laughs> because of the damage. Oh, yeah. So that that is the yeah. only precaution that I have heard. And I thank Mark very much for pointing that out to me. But people with a with rainwater with very limited water supply, you may want to just put them on the hydrants or in most danger of freezing because uh you you will you will lose some water now i love the way we put them like on a cattle water trough or something like that where we put them on a y because that way any water that comes out of the freeze miser just goes right back into the water tank but uh i i'm glad they worked as well for you as they have for me but i i it's just one of the most remarkable clever devices that i've ever seen and i like it even better that it wasn't invented by you know some big monster corporation it was invented by two very gifted uh, guys over just south of Seguin, Texas. <laughs> so really? I love it when the little guy wins, and that's sort of what the situation yeah. is here. Yeah, that makes me feel even better. So Yes, sir. Uh, and I have recommended them to several people uh, this well, winter who are, who are also going to be, be buying them. So uh, very very much appreciate that. The I got a couple of questions. I had okay. I had five or six, but uh, over the week I forgot and I pared them down to two. So, um, <laughs> well, if first, you think uh, of the others, you can always call me back. But let's take care of those two. Okay, first one. I'm looking. I'm putting in several raised beds, uh, new raised beds this year, and I was looking around at some compost. I, I uh, found a place called Burning Bush and uh-huh. talked to them about uh, their molasses compost. Okay. I'm um, wondering if you have an opinion on on that. It it seems to be pretty affordable. I was going to mix uh, maybe um, uh, half and half their manure compost and their molasses compost. Do you have a 
you have any ideas around that? Do you know exactly, I mean, part of the molasses making process is basically squeezing the juice out of sugar cane. And if their compost is made from the discarded sugar cane, it should make absolutely outstanding compost. Uh, I, you know, you can't make compost out of molasses, either liquid or dry, but if they are using the byproducts of making molasses, which is basically just super squeezed sugar cane, uh, that there's going to be enough sugar left behind that that's going to bring a lot of additional life to the table. And uh, I, not having seen it, uh, I would tell you be some of the finest compost you can buy. Now, on the manure compost, I would want to be sure that they are using animal manures and not biosolids just because of the pharmaceuticals and things that wind up in the in the human waste stream and uh, I would verify that they do check carefully to be sure they don't ever have any picloram contamination but uh, uh, if, if assuming that those things you get the right answers to man I'd buy all of it you can afford Okay, good. That's uh, that's great. I'll ch- I'll check with them on those questions and and get back with me on that. I really would like to know. Of course, I don't want to you know have everybody rush over there and buy everything they have before Todd gets what he needs. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm always glad to hear about somebody doing it right. And then after that, I'm always glad to talk about them. Uh, you know, again, assuming they have enough to to supply some people. I there there's some things out there that you know that'd be out of out of stock in two weeks time once people found out about it. But they have a good supply. Of it. I, I sure sure would enjoy telling people about it. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll certainly let you know. Um, second one real quick is we had, uh, we were looking to, to make a, a small hedge, um, hopefully evergreen hedge, and we were looking at xylosma, but my wife, uh, which we've had good luck with in the past, except for last year when it froze, but it came right. back this year, uh, uh-huh. thankfully. Um uh, Copper, uh, I believe it's a copper top viburnum, and mm-hmm. we actually bought a few of them. I was wondering if, before we plant those, is there anything to be concerned about uh, with those plants? Um, well, I know some plants like red tips and things like that are not great for this area. So The, the copper sure top viburnum is a, a new plant. Uh, you know, until we've been growing it for a couple of years, it's going to be hard to ascertain if it does have any problems. Most viburnums do well here. The larger leafed ones will tolerate some shade. The sandanqua uh, and some of the smaller leaf ones need a much sunnier spot. And, uh, you know, just just by virtue of the fact that it's viburnum doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be, you know, trouble-free. But I think it's probably going to turn out to be a pretty good plant for this area. But like I say, it's, uh, it's new to the market, and so we're just going to have to watch it and see. Now, the one thing I will, you said you were looking for a small hedge, as you probably found out, Xylosma is not a small hedge. Xylosma yeah. is a 10 or 12 foot hedge. So, um, I, I, and I suspect the copper top viburnum is going to be a little bit bigger, too. How, how much sun does this area get? Uh, this area gets, um, uh, this particular area is going to get quite a bit of sun uh, okay. i would imagine eight hours of sun a day okay there there are other options there are other hollies that would do fine out there but uh if you like the copper tops i would say go for it i wouldn't plant a hundred of them but 
and until they've been in the ground a couple of years. We, we've had so many plants. There were some varieties of Laura Petalum that came out that were just absolutely beautiful to look at, and then they turned out to be just absolutely terrible plants. Uh, and while some of the other Laura Petalums, uh, the purple leaf forms and all, turned out to be wonderful plants. So I, uh, the county agents and all, they tend to find a plant they like, and they start promoting it as the best plant in the world before we've grown it long enough to know what its bad characteristics uh-huh. are. So that's kind of where I am on the copper top of Iburnums. Let's grow them for a while before we give them 100% endorsement. But uh, you can be, again, one of the experimenters on that. I was going to say, I'll be a test case, yeah. All yeah. Right. All right, well, thank you so much, as always. I appreciate it very much, Bob. Well, it's always a pleasure to visit, Todd. Thank you for the call this morning, and I'm glad the freeze misers worked like they were supposed to for you. Okay, uh, let's get a break out of the way here. Jan's going to be up next. I get to talk to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas, and what a pleasure that is because these are the guys that are, again, providing a service that uh, no one else really ever has. For many, many years across the hill country, every rancher out there, every homeowner out there fights cedar. Uh, most of the time, they want to bulldoze it or run it over with the skid steer, pull it out of the ground, pile it up, and burn it. That does a lot of bad things. That loosens the soil so that it erodes much worse. And then, of course, uh, you're burning up a very valuable resource. And there are other problems can be associated with fire. The folks at the cedar eater do a completely different process they come in with a machine that cuts the cedar off at ground level which effectively kills it and then grinds it into nice mulch all in one operation no big disruption of the ground they can do acres and acres in a single day it's just and and you get a nice mulch as a result of it and and your environment your soil just starts getting better immediately provide other services too to take down big trees that may have died of freeze or drought or oak wilt even have a machine that takes care of the uh, of mesquite so if you're looking to really improve your property in a very environmentally friendly fashion you need to give them a call they have a north texas and a south texas office you reach them both through the same phone number which is 210-745-2743 it's 210-745-2743 for the cedar eater of texas South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. God, Lee, it's beautiful sunshine and blue sky out there this morning. <laughs> it's just going to be a really nice day. Going to be chilly again tonight, especially up in the hill country. Then we warm up for a while. Then we get a little chilly again. It's just that February roller coaster that we're on. I think once we get beyond the rodeo, that just seems to be... <laughs> rodeo always seems to bring uh, some questionable weather, shall we say. And once we get beyond that, hopefully we are just going to move rapidly into spring. Right. Right now, uh, let's just get back to the phone lines. I still have a couple of open lines, by the way, uh, 210-599-5555. We're going to start out with Jan and Renee, and Jan is up first. Good morning, Jan. Morning, Bob. Good morning. I have, um, I'm going to call it a hedge of, uh, I was told it's millibus. It looks like a four-leaf rose. Okay. Um... I, I don't know something by that name. Um, does it bloom? Is it strictly for foliage? It blooms and it's big. It's probably eight foot tall now. And okay. then it's long. It's, it's uh, blocks between our driveway, and our our yard and the neighbor's driveway. And um, I was trying to figure out if you, if you trim it now, uh, will it still bloom? Because it's 
it's way too tall, but right now it's kind of skimpish because of the freezes we've had. So the leaves, so you can kind of see where you want to trim better for sure. for height. When and, uh, when does it normally bloom? Does it bloom March or April, or does it bloom June, July? Oh wow, that's a good question. <laughs> and the reason is, of course, if it's an early bloomer, then I would guess that it probably is blooming on last year's wood. So you would want to let it bloom before you prune it back. If it's a later bloomer, then it's probably blooming on new wood, and February would be the time to uh, the time to prune it. What what did you say I, you think the name was? Millibus bus millibus. Oh 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 oh! I know what you're talking about. Mutabilis. Uh, M-U-T-A-B-I-L-I-S. Uh, Mutabilis is also, uh, oh golly, it goes by a bunch of different names. Oh, that That is a rose that blooms on new growth. You are certainly welcome to prune it back. Uh, it's Botanically, it's Rosa chinensis mutabilis. Uh, some people call it the butterfly rose because the rose, the flower actually changes color over a three-day period. Yeah. So yeah, it's mut- yeah, mutabilis it's, it's, is is uh, the word you're looking for there, but butterfly rose is a lot easier to remember. And yeah, uh, I would, is. yeah, I, I would prune it today. Okay, uh, yeah, it um, has different colors like pink and then yellow, yeah. and yeah. Uh, that's about. But, but if but if you watch the the bloom the buds don't open different colors but each individual flower opens one color and then over about a three day period it changes to other colors so it is a beautiful rose it's uh it's very thorny <laughs> and as you yeah, pointed out yeah. it gets very large but uh, I have to say it's one of my favorite roses because it'll bloom off and on literally all summer long but uh, no it's yeah, it's is- mutabilis rose and it's fine to prune it today the sooner you prune it the better it will fill out and come into bloom this spring okay yeah um it's really big it's real long because there's several plants <laughs> and then yep. it's really tall yep and the birds like the sparrows oh yeah they love, they, love to, they get in it for protection from the cold and uh yeah it's it's a neat bush you've got a real good rose yeah. right and it's and on then, its own um, roots you don't ever have to worry about something coming out from the rootstock because so far as I know, I've never heard of mutabilis being grafted. They're they're always on their own roots, which makes them uh, oh. even a little more defendable in the garden. Right. Um, the other question I had is, I know you uh, said miho is a good, um, like an Satsuma? orange tree. Or... Yeah, Satsuma. Satsuma. Yeah. Um, is that one of the ones with the least amount of seeds? Yes, it most definitely is. Okay. The one that has just overwhelms you with seeds, that one is called Changsha, and that was probably the original one that Malcolm Beck did so much to popularize. But Miho and Sito and Kimbro, and I think there's one called Brecken's Brown or something like that, uh, th- those are all low seed. Right. It, you're, you're not going to be totally seedless, but you're not going to have many seeds in those. Yeah, I'm okay with that. A couple of my neighbors have them. A- their trees and theirs are just loaded full of seeds, and that's just not that fun to eat. No, that I'm sure they have the old, uh, the older variety, the Changsha, which is <laughs> you, you, you get you get twenty seeds per fruit, and uh, Miho, you probably get two or three. Right. Well, I do have one funny little story. Um, I bought some of that fish emulsion that you talked about, and in, in what half gal- half gallon, I guess it is. Well, and if it's so, the Medina one, it's in a gallon, yeah. It's, and they call it their liquid okay, fish Okay, it's Medina. Land. It is Medina. Yeah. And so um, last year I had it out. I 
watered some of my plants with it and left it out <clears throat> on the patio. Well, I guess some raccoons thought it was his drink. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when I got up the next day, he didn't open it, but he had his teeth holes all in the neck where he could get around. Oh, yeah. There were teeth holes all around. I go, oh, yeah, them raccoons would like this fish emulsion. Yes, anything <laughs> anything that that smells even vaguely of fish is going to be a magnet for the raccoons. So, yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, uh, that's that's the one negative of uh, fish products, and uh, uh, there are many different kinds of fish products. Some of them are what we call hydrolyzed, others are cold-pressed, and cold-pressed is much better, and I'm sure that's what Stuart uses in that blend. But, uh, yeah, it's a really good fertilizer, but <laughs> you do want to put it up. But it's funny. You know, I've had the same experience with BT, the insect killer that we use for caterpillars. And uh, oh. if I leave it out, and I'm not sure whether it's possums or coons, but something will come and chew the top off the little bottle to get at that so uh yeah. just just the little critters that we deal with i used to say out in the country but now i think we've got more raccoons in town than we do in the country so they're no oh, friend yeah, of mine. I, live they... by, uh, I live by utsa yep. but i thought i heard a caller call you one time and tell you he was trapping skunks over by a medical center and oh, yeah. he was already at 20 yeah 20 yeah <laughs> I used to, I used well, to live I, in in town, and we we had them uh, skunks, raccoons, possums. Uh, yeah. uh, the wildlife has definitely moved to town, and there are unthinking people who leave pet food outside, and then they wonder why they have all these things show up in their yard. You know, you, right. you gotta you gotta keep your fish products locked up and and feed your animals. If you feed them outside, bring that food dish in as soon as they're through eating. But uh, right. Jan, I appreciate the call. I'm glad we figured out what the mutabilis was, and you have a wonderful weekend. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, hang on just a second, Renee. Got to get a break in here, and then you will be up. We get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited. And, again, one of my favorite stores. Uh, I visit them frequently if I've got gifts to buy or if there are things that I need. You know, that's where I will, one of the places that I will always head first because Wild Birds Unlimited, I mean, it is it is a franchise. There are Wild Birds Unlimited stores all over the country, but each store Although they carry all the Wild Birds Unlimited products, they shop for their own gift merchandise and their own additional merchandise they put on their shelves. And our store out there in the center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner, Kyle and his staff are the best I've ever seen at selecting wonderful gift merchandise, running a really great store, and just having so much knowledge and information to share with people about the wonderful you know, ha- uh, hobby of birding. Wild Birds Unlimited has wonderful feeders, most of which carry carry a lifetime guarantee. They've got the freshest and best seed. They've got seed seasonal seed blends, so to speak. You'll never get that at the grocery store. It's one one size fits all all the time. Well, they know that uh, that birds need different seeds in the winter months than they do in the summer and have all kinds of suet blocks. They have uh, they carry when we can get it or when they can get it. The uh, Flaming Hot product, this new one for Mr. Bird that uh, is full of hot pepper so the raccoons and other things don't go after it, but the birds absolutely love it. I can go on and on talking to you about Wild Birds Unlimited. You just need to go see them. Like I say, they are open. They are out there at the corner. Well, I think it's the Elms Shopping Center or something like that, but it's right there at the corner of Northwest Military and Habner. That would be the southwest side of the street. Wild Birds Unlimited is on the side that actually faces Northwest Military. Easy to find. 
wonderful to find. And if you ever got a question, give them a call. Number's easy to remember, 479-BIRD, 210-479-BIRD for the best wild birds unlimited anywhere. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on an absolutely gorgeous day. It's uh, warming up pretty quickly out there, and it's just going to be just going to be a fun, phenomenal day to be out and about. Uh, get your get your inside chores done early. Let it warm up, and it'll be a great afternoon to get out and work in the garden or whatever you enjoy doing out of doors. Uh, let's get back to the phone lines. It is Renee's turn. Good morning, Renee. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. I have a question. I have five sago palms. Okay. One is over 12 feet tall. <laughs> wow. They froze again. They froze last winter. Yep. And I actually paid $400 for someone to trim them all off and carry the stuff away that was frozen. Right. So I want to ask you if I have them cut back again, if you think they're going to come back again or they're going to die. Well, no, I don't think they're going to die. I'm I'm pretty sure they will come back. How bad do they look? Are the fronds just totally brown, or are they sort of that gray-green color they get when they've been frozen? But uh, No, they're like... totally brown. Okay. You might as well cut them back because a, a frond that's brown is doing the plant no good. Uh, you know, the purpose of fronds and sagos and leaves on mm-hmm. other plants is to absorb the sun's energy and convert it into, uh, you know, sugars and things like that. Right. And when the leaf freezes, that can't happen. So it will mm-hmm. look a lot nicer to go ahead and... Uh, take off all the frozen brown fronds. Now, as I'm sure you discovered last year, if you have that many of them, uh, they don't just come back overnight. It's not like pruning back uh, the rose bush that the last caller had, and, uh, you know, two weeks from now you'll see new growth everywhere. The sagos will will put on their new growth and uh i guess if there's anything good about that severe cold we got it it came before the new growth comes out rather than after and so they should come out just fine they may not produce quite as many fronds but uh they should certainly come back i i wouldn't be surprised you know if it's june or july before some of them come back but uh Uh this this freeze was enough to hurt the foliage and the reason the reason suffered so much and we've, we've got here at the nursery we've got fig ivy on one of the walls that froze back and foxtail ferns that you know that got freeze damage that normally would take much colder weather with no problem whatsoever but mother nature's little trick she played on us this year was giving us two weeks of 80 degree weather all the plants took off their winter clothes so to speak and said oh it's spring and they started putting on new growth and then bam we get back down to the low 20s and the plants simply weren't prepared for it and we had things suffered almost as much damage this year as they did when it was much colder last year but sagos are a hardy plant they were on the earth you know back when the dinosaurs were roaming around and they they're survivors they they have a lot of unique qualities that uh, more modern plants don't have but Mm -hmm. if you're going to grow them you have to be patient with them because when something like this happens it may be months before they really come back again but i i really don't have any doubt that your sagos are all going to be back just fine renee it's just a question you ever water them i really don't 
Yeah, well, they would do better if you watered them. I, you don't they have would. to water them often, but uh, if we don't get a good rain, I'd water them at least every couple of weeks if you want them to absolutely perform. Oh, okay. And watering and fertilizing will def- very definitely make them more cold-hardy, too. So, uh, oh, really? Yeah, they, okay. they'd, they'd like a little drink every now and then, and fertilizer helps them to build a natural antifreeze in their sap. So uh, those two oh, things okay. will reduce the cold damage you have in the future. I also want to ask you, what is a freeze miser, and where can you get them, and are they expensive? They cost about 30 bucks. Um, they are a remarkable little device that you, that you put on your hydrant. Uh, I'm sure you've been on this earth a few years, as I have, and I'm sure you remember the times when it gets really cold, we would all go out and drip our hydrants. We would turn on the hydrants just a little bit so they didn't freeze. You probably remember those days. Yeah. Well, the freeze miser is, you might think of it as an automatic faucet dripping device. It's a little thing that's about three or four inches long, about an inch in diameter, and no batteries, no wires, there's nothing to wear out. It just has some remarkable chemistry inside of it. You screw it onto your hydrant, and you turn the water on. Nothing happens. It just sits there totally dry. But it can sense the temperature of the water when the water gets to 37 degrees, when it gets close to freezing. And when the water gets cold, it causes some of the things inside the freeze miser to change, and the freeze miser automatically begins dripping. As soon as it warms up, it shuts off. So it doesn't matter if you're out of town, in town. I put mine on. They've only been out about two years. I put mine on, turn the hydrant on. I'll do this in, uh, you know, in October, and then I don't even think about it. They'll stay on till March or April, whenever I feel like we're past the danger of a freeze, and then I'll take them off and put them away for the summer months. But it, it's just it's an automatic faucet dripper is what it is. Now, if the hydrant is one that you normally have a hose on, what I do, is put a little Y connector on there. I screw the Y connector onto the hose bib, put the freeze miser on one side, put my hose on the other side, and then I just turn the hose on and off with that little thing that's on the Y, not on the hydrant. I'll go ahead and turn the hydrant on and just leave it on all winter, and when I need to use the hose, I'll just turn it off on the Y deal. But the freeze miser, you don't have to set it. You don't have to do anything except carefully screw it on the hydrant and turn the water on, and it will sense water temperature and... uh, I, you know, it, it, they're just marvelous. I, I, that was introduced to them last year. Tried them on my hydrants because they, you know, there was no reason once I understood the re- how they work. And uh, I mean, I can't tell you. We we sell them here at our nursery, Shades of Green. Most good hardware stores will have them. Most farm and ranch stores will have them. Oh. You will not find them at the box stores. They like dealing with independent merchants, or you can order them over the internet. But um, oh, okay. uh, it's just it's just an automatic way to keep your faucets from freezing, and uh, it's <laughs> it's just a really neat little device. And uh, uh, I, I I have so many friends that take pictures and send me uh, because when they start dripping sometimes you'll get a giant icicle form underneath them Uh, one of my friends who lives near me up in the country had you know like a like a four foot tall column of ice where the water dripped out and protected his faucet but it made a real art sculpture you know with the ice down below it so that that in a nutshell is what a freeze miser is but like i say there are no batteries there's no wires there's nothing to wear out on them and nothing really to go wrong Okay, well, I'll have to look for them then. 
All right. Well, that was it then. Thank you very much. Very good questions, Renee. Thank you for the call this morning. Okay. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Bunch of open lines. You know the number, 210-599-5555. I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery, and uh, they're doing something special for Valentine's Day, and that is on their houseplants and on their succulents. It doesn't apply to everything in the nursery. This is strictly houseplants and succulents. They're going to be at 20% off through tomorrow, through Valentine's Day. That's their little gift for you. But remember, it only applies to houseplants and succulents. But in addition, they are well-stocked with the uh, oh, citrus trees with avocado trees with all sorts of fruit trees the peaches pears plums things like that and uh they also starting they actually have some tomato plants in most of your mercuries have at least a few early tomatoes and fanix is certainly well stocked on those they have seed potatoes they have onions they've got all of those trees that qualify for the green shade rebate program from cps energy fanix is a big nursery they've got all the organic compost and fertilizers and insect and disease controls that you need when you've got 10 acres of ground you have room to carry a lot of different products and fanix has been doing it for a long long time, about 85 years since old grandpa Eddie Fannick started the nursery, always owned and operated by the Fannick family. Wonderful place to visit, right where they've always been, over on Home Green Road, just off South W.W. White, open seven days a week to serve you at Fannick's Nursery and Garden Center. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Everybody's waking up now as Leah, Clint, and Paul are the next three callers. And Leah is first. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Bob. It's so good to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. So I have a couple questions. The first one is um, I had planted a couple rows of carrots Mm -hmm. um, about mid-January. And um, I protected them with blankets over the last couple weeks whenever we would get a cold snap. Um, got in this morning when after I got off of work, didn't realize we were going to have cold last night. Right. And they're all laid over and wilted. Do I just turn these over? Are they gone? No. Or should I no. wait and see if they come back? After the temperature warms up a bit, go ahead and water them thoroughly. Uh, they should be just fine. I mean, we we were cold last night, but uh, uh, not bitterly cold. And carrots, especially ones who were up uh, and, you know, that age, they should bounce right back. I, I doubt they oh, should good. have much damage at all. Now, if you haven't thinned them out, you better get with that and thin them out to where the individual carrots are an inch or two apart. Otherwise, you're going to have what looks like a little green mohawk haircut along there and you're never going to have any carrots it's going to all be foliage and that's where most okay. people fall down uh, on carrots wow. but i i doubt very much that they're damaged we'll have to wait and see if they were very okay. dry or something they might have gotten some more damage but don't don't ever try to thaw something out with warm water but you know when they when they do warm up a bit give them a good thorough watering and uh okay. you should be on your way to uh you know a bugs bunny cartoon <laughs> Great. Um, the other question is, um, I had a, in front of our house, we have a, you know, a gravel road and people always flying up and down and it always creates so much dust. So last year we had um, someone come in and put, you know, some screen t- type of planting out there and right. he did every other one was an oleander. And then in between that, he, I think it was um, mountain laurel out there. 
Okay. And so Not very imaginative, uh, but <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> and uh, he he didn't give me really any instructions. I know the mountain mountain laurel kind of you know dies back and comes back, but the oleander looked terrible. They the leaves turned brown. They're they're dead on there, but they didn't fall off. Yeah, um, that's, do that's I, not a good do I prune those back or do what what, what, what happens with those? Yeah, what color are the oleanders? I mean, what flower? They're color? red. They're red. That is the hardiest form of oleander, so at least he did that right. Your your mountain laurel really shouldn't freeze and come back. Your mountain laurel, last year was an unusual year, and we had a little bit of damage to them, but they should be evergreen all the time. Your your oleanders may freeze back a bit. It would be rare for the red ones to freeze all the way to the ground, and I probably would go in, and I'd cut them back by about half just to make them look nicer, and then I would wait and see where the new growth comes out. Chances are it will come out on those stems that you cut back. If it doesn't, if they come back from the base instead, then uh, before that gets very large, you go ahead and cut them back, you know, all the way just for cosmetic reasons. Plant doesn't really care if you don't do anything, but if you wait until you have new growth, then it's going to be real hard to cut out the bad without harming the good as well. So uh, uh, Mount Laurels, I wouldn't do a thing, just leave them, let them bloom, and then if you need to do light trimming, you can. Uh, on the oleander, so I go ahead and cut them back by about half. Then wait and see where they come out. If they come out from the base only, then cut them further down. If they come out further up the stems, then just water them, fertilize them, and stand back. Okay. That sounds great, Bob. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the call, Leah. Uh, let's get Clint in here before the news break. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I'm going to do uh, solarize a really large patch of garden stuff this upcoming summer. What yeah. thickness of plastic do I need to d- use at the minimum? I would do six mil. It's not that much more expensive than four mil, and six mil is a lot tougher than the four mil plastic is. And uh, you can buy it in you know almost any width you like. It's probably going to come in a hundred foot roll, but uh, yeah, six mil, and just shop wherever your contractor shop because that's the same stuff they use when they're pouring concrete and all. Well, I guess like Home Depot would have something for that then. You said in the contract. I uh, probably so. There's a company called Plastic Supply of San Antonio. Uh, there's another company that I really like called Rufus R U F U S Rufus Walker and Company, and they carry a lot of uh, different materials like that. And uh, I again, I I prefer to do business with them rather than the box stores because the box stores are just not going to have the same quality. But if if that's where you find it, that's where you find it. But just it should be a good tough material. But uh, but six six mils what I go with, Clint. Okay, and what's the time frame? How long does it have to be uh, for solarization? Uh, two important things. Water the ground first so that you get steam rather than dry heat. And uh, July, August is a time frame. You need to leave it on for about six weeks when you put it on. Six weeks, okay. And what time of the year is the best time to put out the no-low? No-lo, put it out when you see the first little grasshoppers in the spring. Product, it's been, problem has been finding no-lo, but there should be back in pretty good production. But typically about April or so, when you see the first little grasshoppers, that's when you want to get it out. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. 
All right, back to gardening on this absolutely gorgeous morning, and uh, I think Clint was holding on for, with another question, so let's go back and talk a little bit more. Good morning again, Clint. Oh, yes, sir. Still hanging on. Very good. What else can I help you with? Uh, like I said, I got a uh, Myers lemon and one of my variety of avocados. Just something loves chewing on them. I never catch the guy in, in the act, but I want to go preemptive strikes on everything. And like to know what to put out, when to put out to help control these sneaky things that keep eating on my trees. Well, you know, if they if they are actually chewing, are they chewing on the bark? Are they chewing on leaves? What what are or are they just going after everything? Uh, they're, no, they're chewing on the leaves. Okay, um, especially the new growth. They, yeah. If it is substantial damage in the you know, and it looks kind of mangled, then it probably is a mammal of some sort. It could be a coon, it could be a deer, it could be almost anything like that. Uh, if it is just holes in the leaves or something taken off of the leaf, then it probably could be caterpillars. And of course, we go after caterpillars with uh, the BT, the Bacillus thuringiensis, and it, it stays on the leaf, so you don't have to actually get it on the caterpillar. But if it's something bigger and hairier shall we say the best thing that i know of is uh some really hot pepper uh i mean you could make your own you could uh, blend up some habaneros or scorpion peppers or you know chiles of some sort and simply spray it on the foliage we used to have a product and i wish somebody would make it again called garlic pepper tea and uh it was just a combination of really hot pepper and uh some garlic and it would stop until it washed off it would stop everything from deer to raccoons uh, there's a, a company and, and of course this doesn't solve your problem but I think it just demonstrates what you could do uh, there's a company I've known the principal for gosh 25 years or so who came up and they, they make birdseed products of different source and he came up with a product called flaming hot and he uses a pepper that is so hot his employees literally have to wear hazmat suits when they are treating the bird seed and all. And, and we've used it, and it's so much fun because the raccoons will not touch it, the squirrels will not touch it. But since birds don't taste heat, they just sit there and gobble this stuff down and absolutely love it. So anything mammalian, whether it's uh, raccoons, possums, deer, or anything else, uh, really hot pepper juice is the best thing I have ever found to stop them 100% of the time. And like I say, you may be able to buy a product that's uh, uh, hot pepper. Some I know one friend that loves jalapenos. He just saves the, you know, the, the uh, juice that the jalapenos come in and sprays that around. Now I have to say I've not had as much luck with dry cayenne and things like that. I like it in a liquid form. I like it to actually spray on and stick to the leaves. But uh, um, until we figure out what's doing it, that's going to be your best deterrent. Okay, I think I found an, another use for my chili patines that grow in wild. <laughs> you found a very good use for your chili patines, that's for sure. Yeah. Throw them in the blender, blend them up as fine as you can, and spray them around, and I'm pretty sure the chewing will stop. Yeah. 
I'm, it, it's not. It looks like they're being nibbled a little bit at a time, which makes it probably thinking it's a caterpillar. So a little BT, I'm thinking. Also, you said before with a little molasses with it. Yes, sir. You're a good listener and uh, a good gardener. <laughs> you, uh, old Barney Grimm, who was the man that invented or basically who started Greenlight Chemical Company, he told me that you make your BT about 40 times as effective if you put uh, just about a you know a tablespoon of uh, molasses to a jar full of BT when you spray he said it just it enhances the activity of the microbes to the point that it just it's just a whole different story why they don't put that on the bottle i don't know but it's something apparently they can't do when they manufacture it it's something that you need to add as you mix up your spray but molasses will make your bt i think it makes it last longer as well as makes it more effective and what type of when to put out trickle grandma wash to put a curbing on everything else aggravating well again i wish it was an easy answer uh the trichogramma wasp parasitizes the eggs of the caterpillars before they hatch so if we're talking about the gall worms little leaf rolling caterpillars and things like that we put them out right now because those guys usually show up in february if we're talking about the pecan nut case bearer which shows up in april then we usually put the trichogramma out in march if we're worried about webworms who typically show up in late may or june we're going to put those out late april early may so we're just kind of anticipating when the eggs are going to be out there and releasing the trichogramma so there's sort of three different times but uh it depends on what kind of caterpillars you're fighting and if you're fighting the the gall worms and things like that right now is the time to begin putting them out good isn't it are they affected by the freezing temperatures by a typical freeze no uh, by the kind of freeze we had last year, I'm sure it has some effect on them. And I, the reason I say that is because I've seen more caterpillars and different kinds of caterpillars early spring this year than I usually see. And my guess is that uh, the combination of snow, ice, and cold in the single digits last year, I think that probably set back the trichogramma populations at least a little bit. But our typical 20-degree weather, no, that's not going to bother them in the least. Good deal. And I guess about a month ago, you had a caller that talked about um, the antics or the Slogo Plus for cut right. ants. Yeah. Any more feedback on that and how well that works? Or You know, I haven't I heard back from anybody else, still. and I have not had a mound that I needed to treat. So uh, if you've got cat ants, uh, you're assigned. <laughs> you get some Slogo Plus and, uh, and let me know how it works. But, no, I, I have not heard from anyone. You know, the cut ants aren't as active during the winter months, so it may just be that people are not fighting them the way they do in the warmer months. So I expect we'll get plenty of chance to try it out. But uh, we've just had a long, cold winter this year. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your call, Clint. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you. Uh, next in line is Paul. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Bob. How are you doing, sir? Off to a beautiful morning start. It's uh, chilly out there this morning. It was 24 at my house, and I've had about enough of that. But, you know, Mother Nature didn't give us a choice. But it sure is a pretty day. Sure is going to warm up nicely. Totally agree with you. I was calling to get your opinion on controlled burns, uh, like for coastal Bermuda and common uh -huh. Bermuda. How do you feel about that? Control burns are a 
great tool. I have to tell you, I think that they do more in a mixed grass situation. I think you will see better results from, you know, burning a, a mixed tall grass prairie than you'll see from burning a coastal field. Uh, I don't think it really harms anything, but you always have to ask yourself, why am I doing it? If you're fighting weeds, if you're fighting weed seeds, uh, if you're fighting, you know, that sort of thing, if you're, you know, if, if you're trying to uh, control some sort of invasive, invasive species or something like that, I think a control burn is a marvelous tool provided it's done properly. <laughs> And it's not usually a do-it-yourself project. But as just something to do on an annual basis, my opinion is that you're wasting an awful lot of valuable organic material out there. So I don't recommend it every year, and I don't recommend it in every situation. I know uh, my good friends that operates the Civil Nature Center up in Bernie, they like to do a control burn every four or five years. And uh, there are people out there that you can talk to that hopefully will be honest with you about the results that they have seen. So... Uh, my answer is it depends on the situation. In many situations, control burns are an outstanding tool. And, of course, it controls cedar. It controls a lot of other noxious things that could be coming up out in your pastures. But, like I say, it's not a do-it-yourself thing. You've got to, there are a lot of different things that have to come together. You have to have enough fuel for it to burn hot. You have to have a high enough humidity that, uh, that you will, the fire will spread. You have to have enough breeze that it will move it across your pasture but obviously you don't want a 30 mile an hour wind that'll move it across somebody else's pastures too so control burns are 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 really good things done by professionals in certain situations so i'm sorry i can't really be more specific about it but uh it's just it's not a one-size-fits-all thing well i was just curious if it would work on stickers you know like the seeds like you know if it's going to burn the seed back that's already there it will help with that to some extent but when i see a big problem with the sticker burrs like i had in a couple of my fields and i had in my yard i have a small low fence yard around my home and then i have a higher fence to uh area that takes in a couple of acres and then my my pasture grasses and things out beyond that i had an area of sticker burrs that was so thick the dogs wouldn't walk into it I controlled it with compost, and sticker burrs are a plant which moves in uh, when there's bare ground. If you've got a good, dense grass cover, you're probably not going to have many sticker burrs, and this has been a wonderful year. The the rains we had last spring and early summer, I've got thick grass in places that I used to have bare ground. So um, in some situations, I think it might help, but I think that some different techniques that uh, encourage a little bit denser vegetation will also uh, do a, go a long way to controlling sticker burrs. I, I, again, the problem I had in a couple of my bigger pastures is it's an area that I was planting Sudan uh, to bale and feed my cows, and I was disturbing the soil constantly, and the, the sticker burrs were horrible. When I didn't have time or or energy to go on doing my own baling, I went back and just replanted some native grasses, and within three years, I had no sticker burrs because it totally choked them out. So uh, wow. there's more than one way to control them. I'm sure a control burn would help, but long term, I think you need uh, you maybe need a little bit different range management technique, like uh, you know rotating grazing or something like that to uh, make gotcha. it a permanent solution. Gotcha. 
Well, I appreciate it. And if you're looking for some good help and advice, even even some of us old-timers have things to learn, but uh, subscribe to uh, and do it online, or you can you know get it as a magazine. I think they still do the magazine, but there's an organization called ACRES, A-C-R-E-S, ACRES USA, and uh, they are into real holistic uh, range management and grazing, and that is one of the most interesting organizations uh, I've, I've ever found, and they, they've helped me. They offer a lot of good advice. And what they do. So you might look at Acres USA to give you some help in, uh, in really good property management. Well, I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate your efforts to do things the right way, and I appreciate your call this morning, Paul. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. All right, James, hang on. Got to get a break in here. And uh, I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And once again, get to talk about a company I believe in. You know, I had an old roof on my house. I literally had to uh, move buckets around when it rained because I live in a house that's like 115 years old. But I knew I wanted a lifetime quality roof on that, so I called Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Got a wonderful roof at an extremely reasonable price. And and I've not had one problem since then, and that's been close to 20 years. Here at the nursery, we had a different company put on a metal roof, thinking that they were all pretty much the same. Well, that roof rusted out, and these guys wouldn't even stand behind the warranty they gave us with it. Well, by that time, we had discovered Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. We called them. They came out, put the new roof on. It really didn't cost any more than the, than the previous rusted-out roof did. We haven't had a problem since then. We've had big hail. We've had all kinds of storms, not one bit of a problem, not one call to Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, except when a big truck backed into the roof. And even a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof won't stand up to a box truck running into it. You know, you're going to save money on your utility bills. You're going to save money on your insurance. You're going to get a beautiful roof, and you have a lot of choices when it comes to the color, to the look that you want. So you need to learn more. By the way, they do new construction just like they do replacement on roofs. And wouldn't it be great if you're building a new home wouldn't it be good to know that you're putting on the last roof you'll ever put on your home well that's what southwest metal roofing systems is all about give a call and find out what i'm talking about 210-822-6868 that's 210-822-6868 for southwest metal roofing systems south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, back to gardening, and uh, James, Robert, and Linda, my next three callers. James is first. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Hey, listen. Hey, our local weather forecasters have been really disappointing <laughs> this this winter. <laughs> Gee, Willikers. What do you mean, this winter? I, well, the only time they get it right is... Yeah, oh, my the only goodness. time they get it right is July when they say hot and dry. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, I mean, are they are they drinking and putting on a blindfold and throwing a dart? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> I uh, I think they have too much data. I think they're doing too much yeah. modeling and not looking at the you know at, at the you know trends and things like that. They they always just want to plug it into a computer and let them tell them <clears> what's happening, and they forget to look out the window and see that it's raining. So anyway, we don't need yeah. to go down that road. But we have well, all. Paid the price of uh, bad forecasting. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I got two questions on gardening. Um, uh-huh. I, pl- I plan on I'm doing an experiment uh, well, on two fronts. I have a gardenia that's doing well in a container, uh, mm-hmm. regular potting soil. But I planted a blueberry uh, in a 25-gallon tub I got at my uh, tractor supply. And right. 
So what I did, I, I've reading online, and some of these are saying because of our hard water or the makeup of our water, I should say, to add a tablespoon of vinegar per gallon of water when I when I water. I'm afraid of burning the roots. I mean, what what I have well water, so let me tell you that. Sure. In the gardenia, I'm using straight well water on the gardenia. I've had no problems. Uh, added nothing to acidify the potting soil, and it's done really well. So, what would Bob do with this with this blueberry? And I need to I need to step up this gardenia into a bigger pot. Um, so, would you just continue with the straight water well on the blueberry, or would you add some vinegar to it, or not? Well, if first of all, if I was going to add vinegar, I would not add uh, you know your your common uh, chemically produced Store. vinegar. I, w- I would use apple cider vinegar. And okay. I I might use a little bit less than that, but let's let's talk about what we're accomplishing in, and that is that we are reducing the pH. We are dropping the number. Uh, pH, of course, is a matter of matter or a measure of how acid or how alkaline uh, things are. And as we go a little bit more acidic on plants that like acidity, like gardenias and blueberries, uh, we make nutrients more soluble. We accomplish, you know a number of of good things uh the problem with uh, trying to do it you know by adding just adding something to your water is that our water is just so high in ph that uh it's always going to be working it's just going to be an ongoing thing that you're doing forever by increasing the amount of organic material in the soil you're naturally producing a lot more humic acids you're producing a lot more fulvic acids and on something like a gardenia usually all you need to do is just be sure that your soil is very high in organic material if I were repotting that gardenia, I would either use just a good organic potting soil or I would add some good compost uh, to the potting soil that I had. And when you're doing that, you're bringing in really all the acidity that that plant needs to do well. And I'm sure it came to you, you know, in a good soil, which is why your well water has caused not a single problem with it. Blueberries, on the other hand, if blueberries were easy to grow here, everybody would have them. And uh, right. I've never been successful at it. I, and if, I, if there's something I have that needs, you know, daily babying, so to speak, it's not going to live long around my place because I don't have time to do that. My suspicion is, and, you know, I talked to probably Mike Fannick uh, over at Fannick's Nursery who's grown more blueberries than anybody else and grown them successfully, but he just grows them in a place with uh, morning sun and in a real rich soil mix and doesn't worry about you know, doing anything special to the water. You're not going to hurt anything adding a little bit of apple cider vinegar, but I think I would focus more on a really highly organic, well-draining soil than I would about something that I had to do every time I wanted to water the plants. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, well, this is going to be confession here. You're not going to want to hear this, but it's already been done. I planted <laughs> this blueberry. I planted this blueberry in a mix of sphagnum peat, moss, uh-huh. Canadian peat, uh, about three quarter. I didn't measure it, but roughly maybe two thirds of that, or three quarters, and then about a quarter pine bark. And then I had a big bag of perlite, about three quarter bag. I threw that in there just for grins. Sure. And I mixed it all in. I've got some espoma hollytone. I read online on one site uh, for growing blueberries. I mixed some of that in per the ratio on the package, and that's what I planted this blueberry bush in. I know it's a long shot. Um, it's just an experiment. I want to, sure. I always wanted to try it, and I have time to baby it, so to speak, right now. 
Okay. Well, your your uh, Holly Tone, and Spoma makes good products, and their stuff's 100% organic, so I certainly applaud your choice of fertilizer. Uh, my only objection, well, my two objections to Canadian peat moss is, number one, it's not a renewable resource. There, It's kind of like oil. We're going to run out of it one of these days. Sure. But um, it, it is so antimicrobial, and one of the secrets to minimal insect and disease problems, of course, is good microbial life in the soil, and uh, Canadian or any peat moss, is a wonderful preservative. I mean, they, they pulled, I uh, saw the uh, head of a red stag deer that had been extinct for 5,000 years that they pulled out of, perfectly preserved, they pulled out of a peat bog in Ireland one time. So that's, those are my objections to Canadian peat moss. If it works well for you, you know, it's, it's you haven't committed a cardinal sin. It's not like you're using Roundup every day. <laughs> something like that which i would really question so um i'm going to tell you just watch your you know watch your blueberry and see how it does plants talk to us not verbally but uh watch the newest growth on the plant and that's going to tell you whether the plant's happy or not and if your new growth has good color and good vigor then keep on doing what you're doing if you start see some seeing some yellowing uh go with some of your apple cider vinegar because what that's going to do what you do by lowering the ph is simply make a lot of your nutrients more soluble so that the plant can get to them better and uh but i i just you know watch the plants and say i think you're holly tone is great obviously you your well water's uh pretty good you can always have it tested just learn a little bit more about the hardness but um sure i need uh, to do that yeah and well it's it's good for a lot of reasons and where, where sure. are you located i'm just southeast of Lytle, and we got okay. to 24 here last night as well i yeah. couldn't believe it my weather yeah. station and my neighbor's weather station both i confirmed it yeah uh, we're well, in a little uh, bit of a valley near a creek so it gets a little bit colder but um, I didn't expect this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of people didn't. But uh, talk to your local groundwater district. They can tell you who does the best uh, water testing, and it's not expensive. And uh, Yeah, I mean, they're over in Pleasanton. It. Yeah, I yeah. need to call them. They might even do it. I'm not sure. Okay. They, they will my second, probably have somebody my, do it, but they do it right. Okay, my second question real quick. Um, I started some pepper seeds, uh, I think, on the 17th of January. I don't have a, a propagating mat or grow light, so I'm just kind of winging it. Now they're up. I got about three-quarter uh, germination. The plants are up. They got their most of them have their second true leaves on it, uh, and they're just in those expandable peat pods, pellets, whatever you call them. Yeah, I bought one of those starter kits. Um, when do I step them up into like a, a Dixie cup or a, a cup or a bigger pot? At what point? There's nothing wrong with keeping them, you know, in small containers. Now, the peat pots, you're going to peel them off. You're going to peel that compressed material away when you put them in the ground. So at some point, um, the, the only time to really repot is when they're just drying out too fast, when you just can't keep them properly watered. So that's okay. you're just going to have to judge. I suspect that if they're just now putting on their second true leaves, they're going to be ready to go in the ground before they really need to go into a bigger pot. So I would focus oh, on wow. giving them just super bright light so that you get stocky, what we, you know, yeah. what grandfather used to call thrifty plants. But uh, repotting is not necessarily a good thing because when we put a small plant in a big pot, 
the drying out of the soil and the water usage by the plant is much harder to regulate and plants in general pepper plants house plants anything are going to grow better when they are slightly root bound now trees and shrubs we don't want to do that because of issues with girdling roots but vegetable plants and house plants man they'd rather be root bound than in a pot that's too big so don't be rushing to put them into a bigger pot i'm going to tell you probably minimum of another three or four weeks before they really need to be stepped up and by that time i'm certainly hoping you can just put them in the ground and lidl and not worry about them well i'm not going to put them in the ground i've gone to container gardening for my vegetables due to to my back and whatnot so they are going to grow in a patio pot um so still in about three or four weeks they can stay in those those little peat pods that i started them in for another three or four weeks they won't get too root bound no, they'll be okay. It won't be a problem at all. And when you plant them, peel as much of the peat moss away as you can, even if you lose a few roots. Peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, they grow a lot of roots in a big hurry. And, uh, you know, if uh, it's just if you were to repot now, I'd tell you the same thing. Peel as much of that peat moss away, the compressed peat away as you can, and you're much more likely to damage a small plant doing that than you will be to uh, damage a bigger plant. Gotcha. Okay, on the apple cider vinegar in the water, if I do go that route, how much per gallon? A uh, couple of couple of teaspoons, maybe a tablespoon. Couple of teaspoons. Yeah, a again, tablespoon at the most. Okay. Yeah, keep a record of what you do and keep an eye on your results. Uh, that's going to be your best indication of whether or not you're doing it right. Okay. All right. I'll keep you updated. I appreciate your help. Thank you. I appreciate you letting us know. Thank you, sir. Good. Uh-huh. All right, uh, got to take a break here. I get to talk to Sam Sitterly, talk about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. You know, Sam's just, Sam provides a unique service. He provides a consulting service, so to speak, to help you know what to do in your landscape. And in many ways, he does the same thing as those poison spreading companies that come out and treat your yard on a quarterly basis or whatever else, only he does everything organically. He does, he makes great use of compost. He's probably the leading expert in the area on compost tea, and he does apply that, and he can help you with just anything that needs to be done in your landscape, even though he's not the guy that's going to mow the grass or prune the trees. He uh, has been in business for over 30 years, always done things organically, huge following. I mean, we get people in the nursery every week just singing his praises. You need to go to his website at greengroworganics.com. Take a look at what all he does. If you think it's right for you, call him for a consultation. Be sure you understand all charges up front, but a lot of people are really happy with Sam. what Sam does for them. That's Sam Sitterly, Green Grow Organics. Check it out at Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. All right, back to gardening. It is just getting prettier by the minute out there. Of course, I'm sitting inside looking out at a beautiful garden. And, uh, it's going to warm up. It's going to be a great day to be outside. I hope you're doing some gardening. and. Uh, it's just going to be the great day for it. Uh, we're going to talk to Robert and Linda and Jeff, and Robert is up first. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Hey, morning, I'm sir. I'm sitting there perusing face. I'm, I'm perusing Facebook while listening to your show, and an ad comes up that is about straw bale gardening. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Yeah, it's it's one of the many gimmicky <laughs> things that uh, uh, I. <laughs> you know, it, you could people do this. Uh, 
I have never seen it be nearly as productive as just good old in-ground gardening. Uh, but it's if you follow their technique, you can grow stuff. But my question is why? I mean, straw is not a bad mulch on the surface, but it's almost totally devoid of nutrient material. Sometimes it's full of weed seed. And uh, uh, it's kind of like a barrel composter. Sure, you can make compost that way if you want to get a cup or two at a time. But in, uh, you know, the same amount of effort, on, you know, a, a static pile compost on the ground, you can get a couple of cubic yards in the time it takes you to get a, a compost that's not as good uh, in a very much smaller quantity. So, yeah, there are lots of little gimmicky things out there, and if you're into gimmicky things, you go ahead and do your straw bale gardening, and I'll be enjoying my oh. tomatoes while you're trying to figure out why yours aren't producing as much. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do this. It was just funny that it just showed up. And, of course, you know, they want you to buy the bag of their product to sprinkle onto of the course. Uh, straw of bale. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, I was, <laughs> I, was just, I was just wondering if you had I was just wondering if you had heard of that because oh, yeah. I thought maybe this is some new. I know it's a gimmick, obviously, and of course the pictures they show are you know fantastic of uh, you know the garden growing so well. But uh, it's just uh, a thing that that I'm sure I'm not the only one that's seen well, this uh, and, ad. And, and you're maybe a smart man. Listening. Yeah, you're you're a smart man to ask before you try it because most of these things there's probably somewhere in some part of the country that it is a very successful, very good way to garden. Probably somewhere up north where they have a much shorter gardening season, but um, you have to realize that a lot probably the 95% of the plant information you get on the internet whether it's facebook or anything else uh is not it is not local uh the only website that i really recommend you go to for ideas and things is dirtdoctor.com which is Howard Garrett's website that's all the way up in Dallas Texas way up north so to speak but uh yeah straw bale gardening has been around like keyhole gardening um like square foot gardening and there are applications where it's very worthwhile but uh I and, and if you want to try it, go ahead and do it, but don't put all your tomatoes in one basket, so to speak. Oh, I'm not going to try it. <laughs> Let's just call it again. Well, and somebody will it. probably call me and tell me that they've done it and been extremely successful, but that's simply not been my experience, and that's that's all I can share with you is my experience and that of my friends. And that's why I listen to your show. And I appreciate that more than you know. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, Robert, and I appreciate the call. Anything else today? Uh, oh, no, thank you very much, man. You get out and enjoy, and uh, we'll move on to Linda. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I got a, I got a Christmas cactus for Christmas, very and good. I have no idea what to do with it. I watered it once, and uh, all the blossoms fell off, and so I thought I should call you. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you did. Christmas cacti are cactus, but they are not desert cacti. They are tropical cacti. They live in, uh, you know, much more moist parts of the world. And basically, you grow a Christmas cactus like you would a houseplant, whether it's a pothos ivy or a Janet Craig Dracaena or a Scheffler or whatever else. Uh, they want to be watered regularly. They never, ever want to get bone dry. If you get them too dry, they'll start getting limp. The little pads will 
kind of lose that turgidity. And um, so basically treat it like a, like a houseplant. Give it lots and lots of light indoors. There's no way you would give it too much light. If you put it outside for the summer, you'd put it where it gets morning sun, afternoon shade. But indoors, keep it in the brightest window you can. Water it thoroughly when it's dry on the surface and then, uh, you know, water it again when it dries out to the point that the surface is dry. Don't ever let it dry out all the way through the pot. The same fertilizer that you use on, uh, you know, your house plants, has to grow plant or the liquid fish or one of the Fox Farm products or something like that. Same fertilizer you use on everything else. Some people grow them in pots. Some people grow them in hanging baskets. It is important when we get to around October or so that you keep them in a place where it's dark at night where they get shorter days and longer nights like mother nature provides us that's what tells them to come into bloom at that time of the year but for the next six months you just treat it like you would uh, you know any other house plant and it will grow beautifully for you and do not treat it like a desert cactus because it is not that great thanks a lot Bob really appreciate all your help <laughs> and you enjoy and let me know how it does for you I want to hear back from you okay day. will do thank you, thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. Jeff, hang on just a second. I uh, really don't want to get behind on these commercials. And I love talking about Rhonda's Nature's Way because uh, I, as you can probably tell, I have always enjoyed pretty good health and pretty good energy. And uh, I just pretty much do whatever I want to in life, whether it's a 20-mile hike or a whole afternoon's work in the garden. And uh, I will tell you that I give Rhonda a lot of credit for learning about how to really keep yourself in top physical condition, how to really keep your immune system strong so that you will naturally ward off a lot of the bad stuff that's going around out there from you know colds and flu to COVID and everything else and Ron's this person who can certainly do it she and her staff are so knowledgeable they've been in business for lots and lots of years they carry supplements I mean if you deal with mood issues or sleep issues or digestive issues you probably don't need to run to your doctor for some prescription medication there are a lot of natural things that will work if you want to boost your immune system naturally She's got all sorts of ways to do that, and uh, I certainly follow her advice. She has products that will help you if you're working at losing weight. In fact, if you're on that diet and still want to eat something that tastes really good, she carries some things that are absolutely wonderful but very low in refined sugar, and that's going to help you in a lot of different ways. She also does red light therapy and beamer light therapy, which the medical community embraces totally. Does those at both stores, her Northside store. She does reflexology. She's doing a new foot bath detox program too that well you can actually see all of the toxins that that's pulling out of your body I'll just let her tell you all about that you just need to go see one of her stores if you're on the south side there she has a store on Southwest Military north side the store is over there in the shopping center at I-10 in Callahan not a huge place but packed with all sorts of things that will help you live better naturally I open every day except Sunday at Rhonda's Nature's Way South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone line. It's going to be Jeff and Ed and Don, and Jeff is up first. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning. How are you? Off to a good start. It's a beautiful day out there. All right, looking at planting crepe myrtles, we just put up a six-foot cedar fence. Uh-huh. And we want to do crepe myrtles along it, so... You know, it's kind of got color, but we're looking at going 
you know, so they go, you know, above the fence, but, you know, it's kind of like a pretty back background. Right. Yeah. It, and I live in Atkins where we have, you know, pretty much sand. Uh-huh. So should you're, I go ahead? You're in perfect Crepe Myrtle country. You can grow just about anything you want to grow in Crepe Myrtles. And i tell you, the most important thing is probably 90% of the Crepe Myrtles, whether you're getting them at a good nursery or elsewhere, are coming you planted too deeply in the pot. So most important thing is when you plant, keep pulling the soil back away from the trunk of that crepe myrtle till you get down to where, you know, the first major roots really start to flare out, and you want to plant so that that is at ground level. But beyond that, if you've got good sunshine, you've got soil that drains well, you can certainly give them fertilizer and the water they need. You're, you're a perfect place to grow wonderful crepe myrtles. Okay, now if I'm getting like the ones that grow like eight, ten feet, or you know nine, twelve, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh huh. How far from the fence do you put them? Like six feet? I'd I'd give them three or four feet. You know, if you want to be able to walk behind them, you probably need no, to stay no. out as much as six feet. But yeah. if uh, you know, if you regardless, really, is what size you're planting, I think three feet is plenty. Okay, because then you know you got to stain the fence every once in a while. But sure. Sure. Okay. Now, are there any recommended ones for, you know, like is now a good time to do them? Panic said they got a uh, a load in recently. Yeah, it's now is a great time for planting all trees and shrubs. The only thing with crepe myrtles is you're relying on a picture to tell you what, you know, they're going to look like. A lot of people like to buy crepe myrtles in bloom, and that's not going to happen till you know, we get into May or June or something like that. Yeah. But uh, if you're if you're happy to experiment and realize <laughs> my my old friend Alton Grimm, friend and mentor that I worked with years ago, Alton used to show me a picture of a rose, for instance, and he'd say, "Now remember, this is the best it could ever look, or they wouldn't have taken a picture of it." So just take the pictures on the tag. I, I would never rely on the picture that's on a tag because the printing they use is okay. not always accurate. Well, but well, go online or go to a, a good website and. Uh, and look at the different varieties. There, there are lots of good crepe myrtles out there. Size you're talking about, if you want a white, I'd probably go with Acoma, A-C-O-M-A, Acoma or Natchez. If you want uh, a watermelon pink, there's one called Centennial Spirit. You want a darker red, uh, you can go with, uh, oh gosh, Red Rocket or Dynamite. There, There's a color for, uh, there's a variety for just about every color you want to have, and that's just strictly your personal choice. Well, I, I was going to go over to Panics because they're right down the road from me. They probably have so, the biggest selection of crepe myrtles uh, of anybody in San Antonio. Don't expect to see flowers on them at this time of year, but uh, Panics right. is a good nursery. They've been they've been there for about eighty five years, and you don't stay there that long and still be going that strong unless you're doing it right. Oh yeah, yeah, that's what, where we go. We go between them and you. Sometimes when we have time and we're in town, we go to you, but. It's easier just to run down the street. If they're down the street from you, I'd. If I lived down the street from them, I'd be in there all the time. But uh, no, it's a, and they, they're they're good on crepe myrtles, and especially if you talk to either Mark or Mike, they can give you all the information you need. I would not rely on what the tag says. I would ask them, okay, this says it gets ten feet tall. How tall does it really get? And uh, you can, they'll be totally honest with you. Oh yeah, yeah, I know they've been great. All right, well, I really appreciate it. 
my pleasure, Jeff. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Good Thank you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Bye. All right. Uh, Ed is next. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Good morning, sir. You recognize the voice? I recognize. Sounds a little more gravelly than usual, but I most definitely do recognize the voice. It is gravelly. <laughs> you got it right. <laughs> Bob, I've got about four arborvitas. And they're about 25, 30 years old, and they're getting thin spots in them. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, what do you think I could do to perk them up a little bit and green them up? Cut them down and plant some new ones. <laughs> I, I I hate to say that, but Arbavita, I, I love Howard Garrett's comment in his original Plants of the Metroplex book. He said, every insect known to man either eats or lives in this plant. And uh-huh. Arbavitas are... They're an interesting plant. They're a pretty plant. They grew around my grandfather's home up in Dallas, but they are not something that is easily maintained. They do not lend themselves to pruning. Uh, they are susceptible to diplodia twig back, to spider mite damage, and it just, I mean, you can cut them back and you'll get some new growth on them, but they're just never going to look like they did when they were younger plants. I guess people would say the same thing about you and me oh yes (laughs) it's uh, you know you can fertilize you can do some pruning if you like but once you prune them you've destroyed that kind of teardrop shape and it's never really going to come back again if you larve arbovita i'd tell you to get rid of those and plant some more because you're you're never going to turn them back into the beautiful plants they were for the first five or ten years they were in the ground what kind of fertilizer would you say Oh, just that same growing green or um, any of the good organic fertilizers would be as good as anything you would ever put on them. Okay. Yeah, I see some around that uh, look really, really nice, nice shaped and everything. Of course, these were beautiful back in the day, yep. like us. And um, but now they uh, well, they're some getting of us weren't beautiful like, even back in the day, so to speak. But we won't go down that road. No. <laughs> um, what has Na- uh, Rhonda's nature? I was in there the other day. What is what has she got up there that will pep you up with energy that you know of? You know, I would I would ask Rhonda that. I I take two or three supplements. I I have been, you know, blessed with good energy most of my life. I the, the supplements I take from her are more immune support and just to be sure I'm getting all the, you know, nutrients and micronutrients and things that I need because at times my diet is better than others. But uh, as far as just straight energy supplement, I, I, I for pain control and things like that, I highly recommend her curcumin and some of those products. But I defer to her as to what's going to boost your energy more than anything else. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I got some N.O. Uh, from her up there. 
Yeah. Well, nitric oxide is great for your circulatory system, and it very definitely will uh, reduce the shortness of breath that uh, a lot of people experience. Uh, but uh, old Ed Staffel's the one that turned me on to that, and I currently buy it from Rhonda, but uh, uh, the one they call Neo 40. But uh, just go by and see her. I know she's had a little time off, but uh, her daughter-in-law's there if she's not there. And, of course, her mom pretty much runs the Southside store. But I would have asked that question of her, and then you let me know how it works out for you, Ed. I shall do it, and uh, you and your sidekick have a good day today. We're planning on doing it, and I do thank you for the call this morning. I'll be listening. I'll be right here. Okay, <laughs> okay. thank you, Bob. Only about, about 10 seconds till news, so Don, hang on. You'll be up first when we come back. You're listening to Gardening right here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right. Well, we've got a couple of open lines again. I know for a while there they were totally jammed up. So if you've been getting a busy signal, that would be a great time to call 210-599-5555. An hour left in today's show. So it's uh, amazing how quickly it goes by. Don't be caught at uh, 10 minutes till 11 when you can't get through and uh, think, gosh, I wish I'd ask that question. Right now would be a good time to pick up the phone and dial 210-599-5555. Uh, we're going to talk to Don. Next. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. It was 30 degrees here in the vine this morning. <laughs> oh, the weathermen missed it again. Yeah, I had 24 up in Bernie, so uh, got the day off to a chilly start. But, boy, anybody that slept in doesn't know how cold it was. It's a gorgeous day out there now. Yeah, I've been working on my raised garden. I'd call and talk to my cousin Martin right after your show and was asking him about the temperatures are setting grout, and he told me, wait until it gets warm. Uh-huh. You're exactly right. I didn't even think about putting water in, in this in this mix and then turn around and put blocks together and have it all pop apart. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why that's why you don't see them pouring concrete when it's uh, really, really cold out there because uh, things, just like garden soil, uh, various other things to need to dry out slowly. And in the case of uh, uh, masonry of just about any sort, the slower it dries, the harder it gets. So um, it doesn't, doesn't do well when, the, when some of that water is tied up in the form of ice. Yeah, you see, I slug 144 blocks out there, and I'm still 30 short. <laughs> you building your raised beds? Yeah, I put it up against a six-foot country fence, I guess you call it, B-crimp, mm-hmm. like you do the regular, and I block it that way up against the south side in order to sure. control the fronts coming in. Yep. But I finally got my material in. Ten yards don't look like it's going to do it. It I'm always takes getting... more. Always takes more than you think it will. And of course, remember, it's going to settle. It's going to go down. So, when you're filling a raised bed, I tell people fill it, you know, two inches or so fuller than you normally would. And a month from now, it will have settled down to just about the right height that you're looking for. Yeah. And then Thursday, I made it over to David Seed. That's a pretty interesting place over there. Oh yeah. But yeah. what you know, me downsizing from going from an acre or two down to raised bed—that's a whole different way of trying to do things. <laughs> well, 
I, I, you know, I, I haven't changed locations, but my garden has actually gotten a little smaller the past couple of years simply because the days are shorter. They're just either I'm, well, I guess I am doing more stuff than I've ever done, but it just, I just, <laughs> the, the end of the day comes before I'm down to the bottom of my list of things to do. So I, I certainly know what you're talking about. What got my attention at uh, David Seed was they have this multi-pack of like four different types of squash seeds that mm-hmm. for those people, instead of just wanting one, I mean, the multi-pack was kind of neat I looked at. David is an incredible guy, and he's he's been at it for a lot of years. And unlike some people, he pays attention to what people want and what people need. And uh, I just have a lot of respect for the man. Of course, anybody that served in our military has my respect to begin with. But uh, David's Garden Seed's just just a neat place, and uh, he's out to help us all. So I'm glad you made it over to see him, and glad you enjoyed the visit. Yeah, I got to visit with his wife and and the son, but he was, I guess packaging or in a greenhouse i didn't get a chance to <laughs> that, that man told me last year when covid started i don't remember but in a week's time he'd sent out twenty-five thousand packages of seed or some incredible number like that so he's a hard-working guy he's a hard-working guy so what's going on in your world this morning that i can help with oh same thing i'm four weeks behind i finally got my seeds into the seed bins and it's so cold outside, I'd bring them in the house now and set it on a heater vent and bring in the growing lights, and hopefully it's going to get warmer so I can go back out to the greenhouses. Well, it's we're, from what they are forecasting, is if that means anything, uh, they, they're showing that we're going to warm up nicely, but then we're going to have another cool down toward the end of the week. But I think once the rodeo is over and done with, then we're going to probably be marching forward into spring fairly quickly. So it's uh, uh, nobody's more impatient than we gardeners are. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm, I'm like ready. It. I'm ready to see winter leave us at this point. I've had enough to last me for this year. Yeah, you see, I don't like cold because in the '80s I went to South Korea. <laughs> I got out there and they introduced me to a snowblower. I'm, I'm not used to that. I'm a South Texas boy. Well, just don't spread the word around too much. Or we, we, we don't want all those people from up north to figure out how good we have it most winters, but. Uh, um, anyway, it's, uh, it, it sure is pretty day out there now, but I, I'm not putting my tomato plants in the ground yet. I, you know, may, may m- bump them up to a bigger pot, but I don't think we've seen the last of cold weather. But, uh, when you get to this point, you know, you're going to have more nice days than you do bad days. And so I'm always looking forward. All righty, Bob. I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. You're certainly welcome, Don. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, next in line is Tana. Then it's going to be Angie and Kathy. Good morning, Tana. Got Tana, a question are you there? And, yeah, I'm good here. Morning. Are you there? Yeah. Hello. I'm okay. Hello. <laughs> Go right ahead. Okay. I have a question, and if we have enough time, I have something to tell you also. Okay. Um, I'm at the point in my life where I'm going to have to give up gardening, but I'm not ready to do that, so I'm looking at container gardening. And like the, like the guy with the, with the bale of hay, um, I have been looking at some of the advertisements and things. There's one for the square foot gardening mm-hmm. and how to do it in raised beds, and there's also 
what's called an earth box or a grow box or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, how or what would you recommend? Would you recommend any of those three for container gardening, or what would you suggest? Well, I, you know, I I am not one. Um, I certainly make enough money to do the things that are important to me in life, but I've never been frivolous with what I spend my money on. And I tend not to buy a $100 box when I can grow the same thing in a $5 pot. So everybody has to figure out, you know, what will work for them. There's a book, I think it's still available, um, you might look on Amazon or something called the Able A-B- uh, A-B-L-E, The Able Gardener, and it is a book of shortcuts, so to speak, um, that that make it possible for people to go on gardening even as we face more and more physical limitations, and, uh, you know, I know, I know a gal who's very much into gardening, even though she you know, is paralyzed from the waist down uh, in a wheelchair all the time, and yet she loves her garden and loves her plants and does very well. But if you're if you're looking for different options, uh, see if you can find the book called The Able Gardener because it probably has things that you haven't even thought of. Beyond that, you can uh, you you can learn from anything you read. Mel Bartholomew's uh, The uh, Square Foot Gardening. It works well if you happen to live a little further north, and there are certainly principles that you can pick up with rotational gardening and companion planting. I think you will you'll gain a lot from any book that you read, but I would not necessarily you know follow his soil mixes. I would not follow everything that he suggests because he may not be growing the things that Tana wants to grow and I know you love your birds and your wildlife and things like that so um, it, it just comes down you need to sit down and make yourself a list and say here is what I want to grow for my hummingbirds for my own garden for my own kitchen ask yourself what you want to grow and then you can turn around and say what is the best vehicle for me to do that and if you want to get a self-watering pot like the earth boxes and things like that you can go ahead and do that but i i it's just i don't know when you when you're spending a large amount of money on something that's going to give you a relatively small amount of gardening space you just have to weigh cost versus benefit i don't really know any better way to put it than that so uh, mm-hmm. i i think you will i think you will learn from everything that you read, but I think that you will come up with your own hybrid plan, so to speak, that uh, encompasses the best of all that you've read. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. So I will see if I can get hold of this uh, book that you're talking about. And there's used bookstores online, too, so I'm bound to be able to find it somewhere. Yeah, and and I... uh, you know, I I wish I had one. I'd loan it to you, but uh, it's something that I I perused, you know, some time back, and just found a lot of really good suggestions in there for people with different levels of ability. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it would be real useful to you. But I, I'm serious. I I would take an evening or you know a Sunday morning in the garden or whatever, and just say, okay, here's what I can and can't do. Here are the things that are most important to me to have in my garden, and then we could talk about the best ways to be able to grow those and grow them with a you know minimum of physical mm-hmm. effort. Okay, I uh, 
I have a deteriorated rotator cuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I've had the knee replacement, and the other one's not too happy with me either. <laughs> but uh, uh, on to the, the little, I don't know if you have ever heard of a balladeer by name of Alan Dameron. I don't know that well, one, no. Okay, in one of his songs, he, he sings primarily ballads. In uh-huh. one of his songs, there's the lyrics that goes, I've heard about wide open Texas where they can ride free and lonesome for days. I can see now that Texans ain't lying. I think I'll just help them keep it that way. <laughs> That's pretty good. I thought you might appreciate that. And if you ever have the time, look up Alan Wayne Damron on your, he's dead now, but he, he's a super balladeer from our part of Texas. Well, that's I'll, I'll definitely make a note of that, and uh, I imagine my uh, my engineer Don Cooper Stevens knows more music than any ten people I've ever known before. So uh, he's probably he could probably tell me ten things about him, and so I will uh, I will I will look for that, Tana, and I appreciate you sharing. Okay, have a good day. Bye. You did the you did the same, and thank you. All right, uh, next up is Angie. Good morning, Angie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Bob, I just wanted a quick report. I heard you and um, Howard talking about Brussels sprouts, and I had mine froze off the top, too, but I did harvest some really nice sprouts um, this week, so I just wanted Very to good. tell you that. Very good. And I heard you mention before that um, plants grown in water have a different makeup than ones in soil. They and, they grow a different type of root in water, and uh, unfortunately, that's why you can't take a cutting that's rooted in water, and when you move it to soil, all those water roots die off, and it starts over making, you know, roots that are adapted to the soil. It, it just comes down to, you know, certain physiological things, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very true. My question with that would apply to when I grow my own slips for sweet potatoes, when uh-huh. I put the in water, and they're growing off the the tuber and then right. i usually snap them off and put them in water to get roots but should i not do that well what you should do is uh because the the process of starting to grow roots takes a little while and it goes it involves in some changes that occur at the cellular level but what you should do is just as soon as you see new roots appearing that sweet potato slip is saying okay i'm ready to make roots now that's the point at which i would get it out and either plant it in the garden or plant it in soil in a pot for a while the thing i would not do is let it make a huge bunch of roots in the water and then transplant it. Once you see the first roots appearing, that plant's telling you, okay. I've made the transition to producing roots, and if you move it to soil at that point, uh, it will grow vigorously, and you won't go through any, any shock when you do end up putting it out in the garden or in the raised bed or wherever you're going to grow it. Perfect. That, that's great information. That's an excellent question. And real quick, my mire that I cover up every year, and it, it freezes, and when should I chop off the dead parts in the that are on the top, all the brown branches. Any Anything that is truly frozen. Now, you need to uh, take a close look and see whether it's just frozen leaves or whether the stems have actually frozen. But anything that is, is truly brown and dead, trim it off whenever you see it. It's just strictly cosmetic. Plant's not going to even know you've taken it off, but it's going to look a lot better. 
Okay, because I remember sometimes you say wait till it grows to see where it's going to grow from. Well, and that sometimes you can tell. Sometimes you can't tell, and sometimes I tell people, well, just take your hand and strip off the frozen leaves and then study the stem. And if it's brown and crispy, you'll know it's dead. Uh, yeah. If it's limber, it may be alive. If you can scratch the bark and see that it's green underneath, then it's definitely alive. And in that case, you may want to wait and see where it comes out. But anything that's brown and crisp, no, you might as well go ahead and get rid of it. Yeah, I'll do that. I can see where it's green and where it's brown. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I got my job lined up. (laughs) Well, good questions, and I appreciate the call. You get out and enjoy, Angie. Thank you. Always appreciate it. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Bye. All right, Don, I don't have any lives. Let's run the recorded, and then we'll get back and start with Katie. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning out there. Looks like we're going to talk to Katie and Kevin and John. Katie is up first. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Good morning. Bob. Good morning. I am um, in content, and I have raised beds. And I'd like to ask you a couple questions, one on carrots, one on potatoes, sure. and then finally a question on climbing roses. So first on the carrots, I've tried them before haven't been super successful and um, I wanted to do a better job of it and was wondering if I should add like some sand to my area of the raised bed where I'm going to put the carrots to help improve how they grow. Well, you know, better soil will always help, but sand isn't necessarily the answer. And if you've got soil that has much clay in it, sand will actually make it harder rather than make it softer. I tend to add more compost uh, than I do okay. sand under under most situations. And the, the thing that people, where people usually have problems with carrots is where they're not thinning them out enough. And one thing, especially people that have not been real successful with carrots, and I I don't really have a seed company, although Johnny's Seed may be one place, but you can buy what they call pelletized seed. And that's Mm -hmm. where they've taken a small seed like a carrot and surrounded it with sort of an inert Mm -hmm. material so that it's a lot easier to spread your seed out properly to where you're not just thinning constantly as things grow and I might suggest that 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 would help Um, otherwise just you know space your seed out as best you can when you're growing your carrots and keep in mind that those plants need to be a good inch apart uh, if you're going to have any hope of of growing a good carrot otherwise it's just going to be all top and no root Uh, now some of the little fingerling carrots are not such an issue they make a smaller carrot to begin with but I I certainly think you you could do things to improve your soil mix but and you might add some sand but I would if I were adding sand I'd add three parts compost every one part sand that I added uh, to the soil but uh, you should okay. be able to grow good carrots up in Concan, and you are a little cooler than we are in San Antonio. So if you want to try to get another crop in, you need to plant real soon because carrots are cool-weather plants. They don't like it when the weather gets real hot. And uh, as crazy as our weather is, as much cold as we have, I wouldn't be surprised if we kind of skip spring and go to a much warmer time. So oh. if you're going to grow any carrots, I'd, uh, I'd get them planted immediately. 
Okay, we'll do. And any variety that you could suggest you for want to just grow the a sh- good eating carrot? Yeah, um, Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S, is one that is very good. Uh, there's one called Danvers, D-A-N-V-E-R-S. Yes. Danvers half half long is another carrot. The real long carrots just don't do as well, but your shorter carrots and uh, Nantes, Danvers. Uh, there's one called Red Chart Chantenay. Uh, just just a shorter carrot is going to be the thing that's always going to grow better for you and for me. Okay, we'll do. Okay, now is it too late for potatoes as well? Oh, no, no. In fact, okay. it may be a little early on potatoes. It's certainly usually mid February, but again, you're a little further north. So if it's a week or two before you get your potatoes in, you're going to be in good shape. But uh, potatoes now, I've never are never done potatoes. <laughs> They're, they're they're easy to grow, and we're talking regular potatoes. We're not talking sweet potatoes. We're talking about your yes. regular potatoes. Uh, I especially like the red skin varieties, uh, and they when what you do the way you plant them is you'll you'll get seed potatoes. Uh, what you get from the grocery store may have been treated one way or another to keep the little eyes from sprouting, and you obviously want a potato with live eyes. So you probably go to a nursery and get what are called seed potatoes you cut them into sections i try to leave at least two eyes in each section i will dip them the two things you can uh, you can dip in to kind of cauterize and cut surfaces are either wood ashes or rock phosphate i've always got plenty of powdered rock phosphate because i use it planting tomatoes and things and i just kind of uh, carefully roll my little cut sections of potato around in that and then plant it in my loose open garden soil just the same place i plant beans or, or carrots or anything else mm-hmm. but you want to plant your little sections of potatoes about an inch deep and then water, stand back, fertilize, just let them come up and grow. They they will make quite a mass of foliage. And after they've been growing, again, just standard basic care. I'll use a liquid, little liquid has to grow and water mm-hmm. maybe a couple of times a week, depending on what the weather does. But after they've been growing for four to six weeks, you can take your finger, if you like, and you kind of probe around down in the ground. All the potatoes are going to grow pretty much right at the base of where the plant is. And when you start feeling little potatoes that are, say, the size of a golf ball or something like that, if you want to pop a few of them out of the ground and have the most delicious new potatoes you've ever had in your life, you can certainly do that. If you're more concerned about growing a bigger baking potato, just leave them and let them grow. Some people like to bank soil up around the sides. I've never found that that really does a lot to increase potatoes. But one thing for sure, anytime you actually see the top of a developing potato on the surface of the ground, you've got to cover it up with soil or mulch or something. Because if sunlight hits the top of the potato, it starts producing chlorophyll, which will destroy the eating quality of the potato. But uh, if you're interested in big potatoes, just let them grow until the tops begin to die back. Uh, with your spading fork or whatever, uh, you'll just, you know, down at the base of the plant, you just turn the soil over and you'll usually have somewhere between four to eight and ten good-sized potatoes down at the base. And just, you'll, you know, it's time to harvest when uh, 
when the foliage begins to die back, which is usually in June. But there's nothing wrong. Potatoes don't ripen. Potatoes don't get any better because they've stayed in the ground longer. They just get bigger. So you can uh, feel free to, you know, harvest some little new potatoes through the growing season. That will probably reduce slightly the number of big potatoes you find at the bottom when you go to dig things up. But um, I generally like new potatoes better than I like any other potatoes. So you just kind of do what, what pleases you. Great. Okay. Thank you. And then one question is on my climbing rose bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got pretty limmy over the summer. Right. And and with the idea that I was going to trim it back, and then I realized I may be trimming last year's wood. Such right. I understand that's where it's going to bloom. Yeah. So any suggestions about controlling this? climbing rose bush and when I can trim it or if I can trim anything now. No, not now. Only on your bush roses. Uh, But on your climbing roses, let them bloom. And as soon as his first good crop of blooms has faded, that's the time to do your pruning. Uh, some okay. climbers will rebloom. Many will wait until next year. But always let them do their first bloom and then, then do your pruning on them. And just realize that climbers are bigger roses. If this rose is just bigger than you can manage in a given space, uh, transplant it. And we're, you yeah. can still transplant. We're still in a good transplant time. Just be sure you do not let the roots dry out. But there are spots that a climbing rose is just too big to manage. So that's your decision to make. But uh, as far as pruning, you need to need to enjoy your flowers first and then prune afterwards. Will do. Great. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, I've got let it. Let me know how Appreciate things it. go. I want to hear about your, uh, about your potato successes. So you, uh, let oh. me know how you do, Katie. Thank you. Will do. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Uh-huh. All right. Got to get a break in here. Then it will be Kevin and John. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Kevin and John and Hank. And Kevin is first in line. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, Bob. How are you this morning? Beautiful day. Uh, it's a beautiful morning out there. Can't wait to can't wait to get out back out into it another hour and a half or so. Well, I'm country not too far from where you are between Pipe Creek and Bandera. Yes, sir. I've got an entrance to a piece of property that um, is, and I've got some beds on each side of the road as you go into the property. Uh-huh. The bed on the left side is the lowest maintenance I've ever had to worry about. Nothing grows in it. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I mean, it's. It, I don't know whether the ground is even sterile or I don't know what's going on, but I'd like to plant along a, a rock wall that's about four foot high and into this bed, some maybe some red yucca and mm-hmm. some sage. Um, but what do I got to do to this soil to turn it on? Well, uh, first of all, and those are two excellent plants. I was, you know, my mind's always running a little ahead, and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to recommend if that's what the question is? And red yucca is definitely one. It's not really a yucca, of course. It's hesperalo, but it's a good choice. Um, uh, your different sinises, your so-called purple sage, uh, is good choice. And there's some other things, of course, you could consider, including mount laurels, evergreen sumacs, a lot of the truly more xeric plants. But soil has to uh, the number one thing is it's got to drain and first thing i would do out there is dig a 
you know, a hole maybe a foot deep and a foot wide, fill it with water and see how long it takes to drain. And if the problem is just that you've got so much caliche that the soil isn't draining, that's going to keep you from doing well with just about anything. And you may have to think about either berming up or creating a bit of a raised bed. But that that's one thing that would come to mind as to why nothing really seems to want to grow there. If the soil is exceptionally tight, you can always add compost, you can add lava sand, you can add some different things to improve the soil, but the drainage is just, uh, that that's the first thing that comes to mind because unless your soil is very different, definitely different than mine, uh, you may have a lot of caliche and the problem may be drainage, so that's what right. you've got to take care of first. Um, beyond that, you just you got to supply water and nutrients, and anything you plant, even if you were to plant cacti, they're going to need water at first until they become established. But uh, just the same good old growing green fertilizer or nature's creations landscape uh, fertilizer, any of those are going to be good. And as long as it's sunny, uh, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to grow you know a lot of different things they will of course need to be deer resistant or deer tolerant or whatever because you certainly sit in an area that's got an awful lot of deer and even though you may not see them on the road during the day you can bet they're going out at night and checking to see you know what might be out there that kevin's planted that they would like to nibble on but um i i, I think if you're having trouble getting anything to grow uh, you've either got a drainage issue or you've got a problem with the soil and both of those can be addressed so I, I'm gonna. I have the capability of a backhoe to be able to dig out the bed. It is kind of a raised bed, um, mm-hmm. and I think the soil is heavily compacted. So yeah. I, you know the compost and all that is a great idea. Um, so let, let's assume I'm going to have to dig it out and try to check that that drainage. I think those are both issues I got to deal with. But. Um, well, so do your first I, drainage check. Do it with a shovel, not with a backhoe. You don't have to dig a swimming pool to find out whether the soil is going to drain or not. And, um, right, right, right. But, and, and then if you find that your soil just isn't draining, uh, is this on a slope or is it on a fairly flat area? Flat. Flat. Okay. Very flat. Okay. Very flat area. Yeah, if it was on a slope, I was going to, we were talking about French drains and things. But at this point, um, if, if it is just very, very hard pan and, and, you know, very compacted, you don't want to just dig a swimming pool. You, you either want to break through that compacted layer to where the soil can drain naturally. Um, you could do things like at one time at least treat it with hydrogen peroxide to sort of flocculate the soil. But the first thing we've got to figure out is whether the soil drains. And if not, then we've got to either figure out whether we can dig deep enough to get into a layer that will drain or whether we're going to have to mound up. I'll use an example of what happened to us here at the nursery when we did an expansion about 20 years ago and uh, we planted some oak trees without realizing that we had a very high soil or a very high soil water level we planted some big trees like 10 inch caliper trees and they promptly died and we realized what the problem was we brought in some more trees and rather than planting them in the ground we just set them on top of the ground and then we build up 
uh, built up around them, in this case with railroad ties, to create a bed. Those trees today are monstrous, and they've done extremely well where the tree was allowed to put its own roots down wherever it found the soil that it needed to grow well. So uh, there, there are different ways to deal with this, and sometimes you just can't dig a big enough hole to solve the problem, and you have to go after it from a different direction. So I have one more question about the red yuccas. I've got two at my property in San Antonio, and they're huge. They've gotten out of control. Are they capable of being transplanted or split or anything like that? Either, either, or, uh, either way, you can dig them and move them. I would be doing it fairly soon before we get into the really hot weather so they have a chance to get some roots down before we get into what is typically hotter and drier. And don't divide them into little tiny pieces, but, uh, you know, they have what passes for a small rhizome as they gradually make a larger and larger clump and if you had a let's say you had a clump of them that was two feet in diameter you could probably easily divide that into four plants uh, and do very well with them and if i don't want to do all that work where can i find some do you all have those at your store we typically carry them in both one gallon and five gallon size they're pretty common plant uh most nurseries are going to carry them there are some New varieties, if you're looking just for the old standard kind of coral-colored red yucca, easy to find. There's uh, one that came out of Mountain States Nursery called Brake Lights that's much redder. There's one, although it doesn't bloom as heavily, that has a true yellow flower. But your old your old common coral one, which is still beautiful, uh, that's usually available, you know, 12 months out of the year. Okay. And planting them, got to get with it and plant them soon. I would suggest that. Uh, I think you've still got a good month or six weeks of planting time. And we're looking to, you know, where you are, we're going to have some chilly weather again the end of this next week. So spend the next week or so working with your soil. And after that, we should be at a real good time to put them in the ground. If you're looking for the uh, purple sage, keep in mind that there are lots of varieties of that. I would not go with just the old native one because it gets tall and rangy. But there's one called Thundercloud. There's one called Desperado, another called Eldorado. Another one simply called Compact. Uh, then there is uh, a white one as well. So realize that there are a bunch of different varieties, some of them more green leaves, some of them more green leaves. So don't necessarily pick the first one you come to. Take a good look at what's available and choose the ones you like best. If you want to look at other things, there is a little native plant, probably actually grows on your property, called Damianita that would grow very well there. And uh, it's a native thing with very fragrant foliage and tends to bloom profusely. Uh, evergreen sumac, mountain laurels, um, perhaps if you want something bigger, possum haw holly, which is so beautiful this time of year with no leaves but red berries all over it. Uh, you can turn that entrance into a place that will make people jealous. <laughs> well, that's, that's the mission. We'll see what happens. I appreciate your help, and I'll come visit you. You're just a few doors down from me on sunset. Uh, well, we'll look forward to seeing you. You get out and have a good Thanks. day. It's good to talk to you, Kevin. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. I guess we better get our last break of the show out of the way. Get a good, uh, done, got, got my interest up, a Valentine's fishing song. So uh, we always do that for the last break, and then we'll probably finish up calls with John and Hank. Girl, let me put this out there. I want to take you out away. We can get a little fresh here. Pop a top, share a spot on a long chair. 
Honeysuckle in your long hair, girl, I swear I can hear them crickets cricking while them limes are getting twisted and the sun is slowly sinking like a bobber tonight. And when they ask us where we're heading, we'll say somewhere where they're hiding little secrets by hiding when them lightning bugs are bugging. Catch a buzz and catch a feeling just to reeling you in. Stealing kisses just go missing when they <laughs> Don, that is a very appropriate Valentine's fiction song, and uh, I, I can identify with those lyrics. That sounds sounds like a good time, and uh, sounds like a, a good reason to be fishing. Uh, let's see if we get a little bit more gardening in here before the end of the show. I think we've got time for John and Hank. John is up first. Good morning, John. Morning, Bob. I want to ask you, I I had a couple of Myers lemon trees, small, about uh, the trunk's only about like a pencil in diameter, about 18 inches higher or so. Okay. And I double, I double wrapped some of the Texas tomato cages, put over them and filled them with leaves. Uh-huh. Uh, back back before the big, uh, uh, this last real hard trees. Right. And what I'm wondering is, with it double, I pulled them off. I actually left the leaves in probably too long, but it seemed like every time I got ready to take them off, it was going to be up down to 21. You know? It so, may do it again this week, yeah. Well, I know, and that's what I'm, I'm thinking. But also, when you double wrap a cage like that and put it over, is there still enough light that can get in? Uh, or do, you, it, do I need to pull those off and let them sun a bit? I would probably alternate. If I were double wrapping it, I don't think I would leave it on all winter long. Leaving it on for a week or two, yeah, that's going to be just fine. Leaving it on for a month or two, probably I would want it to have a little bit more sunshine sometime in between times there. So um, I, you just I, what I would do at this point is I would probably just lean over and pull a few handfuls of leaves out. If the leaves still look good and dark green and everything looks fine, then uh, leave it on for another week or so because we're looking potentially next Thursday, Friday. We could be pretty chilly again. Uh, if not, take it off for a day or two, but do put it back on. But I'd, I'd just kind of pull some of the leaves out and uh, take a look and see how the plants look. Well, actually, I, I took all the leaves out, and then, uh, okay. and but they don't look too good, you know. Okay. I mean, the, on one plant, the leaves are, are really curled and drooping, and a lot of them have fallen off. The other one, the leaves are still on it. It doesn't look great, but it's, you know, it's just somewhat the same way that the leaves are curled and and drooping. I put a little uh, molasses and, and uh, seaweed on them. Uh, and a little touch of fertilizer just to see if it would help any. Uh, well, just just remember that you're not going to get instant results from anything that you do. Uh, having curl leaves, having them look lose some leaves, that's kind of typical in the winter months. Um, I. You know, I would probably put a little Super Thrive on them. I would go with some uh, liquid fertilizer like Hastergrove Plant or something like that. 
But at this point, uh, we're probably we're probably late enough into the season that single wrapping is all you're really going to have to do. And I might just lighten up on you know on the insulate that you have wrapped around them. And like I say, a little Super Thrive, a little bit of Hastur Grow. And as long as you know the the stems, the limbs aren't shriveled or brown, I'm not going to be real concerned because citrus is never real pretty in the winter anyway. And that leaf curl is just something we go through when the humidity changes and everything else. But if they've got good color, if they still have at least some good leaves on them, uh, they're going to come through the rest of this just fine. And who knows what the crazy weather is going to do. Remember last year, our coldest weather was Valentine's when I had five degrees up in the hill country. So I seriously doubt that we're looking at anything like that. But I'm... Uh, again, I wouldn't I wouldn't put the insulate and the tomato cages away yet, and uh, those leaves were were a great thing. And if it looks like it's going to get really cold, yeah, wrap that second layer back around and uh, and and dump some leaves back in the top. But I think at this point, what I would do is probably the super thrive and just reduce it to a single layer, and don't expect them to change a lot for the next six weeks or so. But then you should start getting some good new spring growth on them. Okay, thank you. And one other question: At what point, like for like flowering up, I have a uh, like an olive tree. Uh, wh- at what point do you, and even on the on the citrus and some figs I've got, at what point do you go ahead and start use, putting like the color essentials to help get more flowers or blooms? Well, or that that's something you need to do back in the fall. If you wait till spring to do it, you're you're a little late on that. But uh, uh, do that in the fall. Right now, I would just be using a good general thing like the Hester Grow. But yeah. uh, John, I'm going to let you go so I can get Hank in here before the end of the show. Uh, good morning, Hank. Hank, are you there? Yes, yeah, sir. Short morning, on time. Bob. How can I help? I got good a morning. question. I was doing some work at my sister-in-law's place up in Medina. She's just past the children's home. She's got, I don't know, 14 acres down in the valley with a creek behind her. 20 years uh-huh. ago, she bought it and cleared all the cedar off and planted live oaks and a bunch of Monterey oaks. Some of the Monterey oaks got really big, but after this last freeze, one of the big ones was dead. We had it taken out this last and the rest of them, they just don't look good. I know you said before, if they're supposed to drop their leaves and they're not dropping all their leaves, something's something's wrong. And I mean, it's really fertile soil, and uh, mm-hmm. I well, thought that tree was well adapted to this area. Well, it's well adapted, but we got the coldest weather we'd had in many, many years on top of some drought, and uh, the tree simply got hurt. Uh, I would, you know, if they've lived this long, they're probably going to survive. But Monterey Oak, uh, this is this worst damage I've ever seen on them. I would definitely, you know, be sure the root flares are exposed. I'd use a good fertilizer like Medina's Growing Green or something similar. If we get droughty, and we almost always do, I would give them some supplemental water. But at this point, it's just going to take some time to see if they're going to come out. You're still looking at freeze damage. I'm still looking at freeze damage at my place. But I have to say that my Monterey Oaks have started looking better in the past month. But uh, it's going to take a while for them to come 